Good morning. This isn't a bad dream. You got lucky and got me this morning. Russ and Greg are both gone this morning at Teens Encounter Christ, serving there. Some of our youth are also there. This is a wonderful event that they get to be a part of and really show the love of Christ and God to some young men and women in our community. So this morning they asked me to uh, give a message. You know, when I was talking to Russ about preparing this message, uh, I said, man, this is tough. I don't know how you do this every week. And he says, you know, I've told a few pastors, it gets easy after you do message number 500. I'm going to tell you right now, it's never going to get easy for me. I'll tell you right now. But we're going to open up to the Gospel of John, chapter 15. I ask that you get your Bibles open. If you have just your phone, get your apps open. If you do have a pen and paper, have that handy. Um, it is much better to hear from the Word of God than it is to hear from me. So I'm going to use a lot of Scripture today. And we're going to try the wonderful thing about the Scripture and the wonderful thing about the Gospel is that they all interconnect. Old Testament points to New Testament. Gospels tie in with other Gospels. Letters written to churches tie in with Gospel and Old Testament. It is such a wonderful and rich uh, writings that divinely inspired Word of God for us that we need to understand how this works. And being able to track those scriptures back and forth is an important part to this. So as you know, we've been working through the Gospel of John. Today we're in John 15, but I want to give a little context to John 15 because this is a little bit of a transition that we have going on here, okay? So in John 12, remember, this is when Christ is coming into Jerusalem. This is the beginning of Passover week. This is beginning for us what would be leading into the crucifixion to the resurrection of Christ. So this is where he is walking. He is uh, riding into Jerusalem. He's on a donkey. He's on a colt. He's coming in like a king. People are waving palm branches, if you remember. They're laying down their coats in front of him. The disciples are involved in this. And what I'm giving you today is kind of the point, for, the point of view from the disciples. They're involved in this, and they're seeing how wonderful this, his, this Jesus to them, the God who's going to be the king, is coming into Jerusalem. But the disciples didn't have the right view. They didn't have God's plan in mind. That was chapter 12. In chapter 13, now this is where it starts to change. Jesus is going to lay down some truth. He's going to hit the apostles with some truth that I don't know if they're ready for yet. We move to the upper room here. So remember, they're in the upper room. That's chapters 13 and 14. So they're in the upper room. One of the truths that he gives them is he washes the disciples' feet. He washes the disciples' feet. He, lays, he comes down and takes the heart of a servant. He washes their feet. Peter did not understand this. Okay, now we're getting a reoccurring theme here, if you remember from 12, now working to 13, where the disciples don't really understand what's happening. He, then he goes and he talks about Judas's betrayal. Now remember, we're sitting here amongst these 12 apostles and Jesus, and they've been going for three years together, and he says, one of you is going to betray me. And they look around at each other. They have no idea who it is. The disciples didn't understand. The apostles did not understand what was going on. He tells them that he's leaving and that they can't go where he's going. And they're, now they're getting beside themselves, right? I mean, now when we look back at it, there's so much scripture that points to this, but you gotta imagine they're in the heat of the moment. They're in the upper room. All this is going on. He's, told, he's washed their feet. What's going on here? Someone's gonna betray him. He's leaving. And then Peter gets so stubborn in this that he argues with him, Lord, 
that's never, I'm never, I'm going to be with you. I'm going where you're going. And he, Jesus has to come in and say, you're going to deny me. You're going to deny me three times before the rooster crows. Peter, the rock, the unofficial kind of head disciple, head apostle. These apostles are shook. They don't know what's going on. So now we come to chapter 14. And the heading of my Bible is funny. It says, Jesus comforts his disciples. Okay? I think that's funny. It made me laugh when I looked at it. it and now, now it's true. My Bible's not, it's, the heading is not, not misleading me. But this comfort that he's giving them are these great truths that I don't know if they can comprehend. You know, I'm putting myself in that position saying, okay, we just came in, everything's starting to unravel, and now he's hitting me with these, some of these wonderful truths that he's getting ready for. Greg did a great job last week of explaining the apostles' different personalities that are going on in this, and you can start to see this come out in some of the questions. In verse 5 of chapter 14, Thomas says, Lord, do we not know, we don't know where you're going. How do we know the way? Jesus answers with one of the greatest verses, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Verse 8, Philip says, show me the Father and it is enough for us. Now, <laughs> I think Jesus is sitting there. This is one of those moments where Philip asks that question. He's at the end of the table is what I'm imagining. And Jesus kind of gives him one of these looks like, are you kidding me? He kind of side-eyes him a little bit, right? But he answers. He gives him a great response. Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? Verse 22, the other Judas, not Judas Iscariot, says, Lord, what then has happened that you are going to disclose yourself to us and not to the world? Christ answers in 26, but the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring remembrance in all that I have. He's laying out here the divine inspired word of God. The Holy Spirit coming upon them, allowing them to remember and to then write this all down for our benefit. So in this little short section, you have a brief explanation of salvation. You have a breakdown of the Trinity, God, Father God, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit. And you have the divinely written word of God through the Holy Spirit. Now remember, all this happened in the upper room. These guys are in shock, right? We're sitting here and you know, you've seen the paintings of the upper room and they're all lounging and you know, it's so nice and wonderful and all this stuff. That is not at all how I pictured this. I imagine all these guys kind of standing up, some on the edge of the seat, some kind of doing this and walking around like, what is going on here? He's just blown their socks off with this statement. He washes their feet, says Judas Iscariot is going to betray them, says that he's leaving, tells Peter that he's going to deny him, lays out a path for salvation, ties the Trinity in with himself, talks about the divine inspiration of the word of God. And then the last verse of chapter 14 says, arise and let's go. So he lays out all this stuff and he says, hey, we should probably get going, guys. I kind of got a timeline here. We need to hurry up and get this moving. So you guys got all that? We're out. Let's go. I mean, this is, this is crazy, right? So at the end of chapter 14, it ends with them leaving the upper room and they are walking Okay, that's where chapter 15 is. That's what we're getting in today. They're walking from everything that they've just had told to them. They're walking to the Garden of Gethsemane now. Now remember, the Garden of Gethsemane, this is where Jesus is going to pray so fervently that he sweats drops of blood. This is where Judas is going to come and meet him with the Pharisees for the betrayal. Okay, so that's what 15 is where we're going to break down today. Okay, Disciples, where they're at, they're moving on to this. This is this transition period. So I ask you, look at chapter 15, and we're going to look at verses 1 through 8. 
says, I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. While every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. He starts off this section here with the, an I am statement. It says, I am the vine. Now, this is the seventh I am statement that he has made in the book of John. Okay, now remember, an I am, the I am statements are very, they're very a bold statement. Okay, John 6, 35, I am the bread of life. John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. John 10, 9, I am the door. John 10, 11, I am the good shepherd. John eleven twenty five. 25, I am the res resurrection and the life. John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And now in John 15, 1, I am the vine. Now, the reason this is important is this is something that is familiar to the disciples. Remember, 13 and 14, he's told them all sorts of stuff that have kind of thrown them off their game. They don't know what's going on there. It is not the plan that they had in their heads. It is not the plan they had in mind. You know, what's happening here? But he brings it back in this walk, this wonderful walk that they're on their way to the Garden of Gethsemane. He brings it back by saying, I am. Now, I am references back into Exodus chapter 3. In Exodus chapter 3, in verses 13 through 14, if you remember, this is where Moses is speaking to the burning bush in the wilderness, the burning bush that is not consumed by fire. Verses 13 and 14, Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they asked me, what is his name? What shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. Okay? Jesus, again, lays out, this to me is the comfort. This is to me him stating, I am God. The Father is in me and I am in the Father. He comes here and gives them a comfort statement. A comfort statement that they are standing in the presence of God and he has a plan, his good and perfect plan. But he says, I am the true vine. Now what... The true vine, what does that mean in this? What does that mean? Now, a lot of times, it could be a metaphor, okay? And the problem is, you know, the, the Israelites, they understood it. Uh, they would have known what's going on. They were in the farming society. You know, they understand what a vine is, right? But a lot of times, on a little side note, we sometimes miss these metaphors, we don't, re we don't know, we don't catch the context. You know, we have slang terms today, we have things that we say today that 100 years pe ago, people are like, what are they even talking about, right? You know, I heard Pastor Russ this week go, yeah, I texted somebody and they ghosted me. <laughs> That's kind of funny to hear from Pastor Russ, right? You know, but imagine if that were written down and 300 years from now, 2,000 years, somebody's reading that later and they're going, what does this mean? 
right? What is he even talking about here? That's why it is important to dig into the Bible, to look for the stuff, read commentaries, read study, study Bibles on this. People have done millions of hours worth of work around this to give us a little insight. And so that's what we're going to look into here, get some of this insight. I am the true vine. Turn to Psalms chapter 80, and we're going to look at verses 8 and 9. It says, you transplanted a vine from Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it, and it took root and filled the land. Now, we know what we're talking about here. You, drove, you transplanted a vine from Egypt, and you drove out the other nations, and you planted it. He brought the Israelites out of Egypt. He moved all the other nations away from them and planted them in Canaan. The Israelites were the vine. The apostles understood this. The apostles knew this. They knew that they were the vine. This is what God had called them. Hosea 10.1, Israel was a spreading vine. He brought forth fruit for himself. Jeremiah 2.21, I had planted you like a choice vine of sound and reliable stock. How then do you turn against me and become a corrupt wild vine? The Israelites knew this. The apostles knew this. This was familiar to them. During, the, during about 200 years before Christ, they call it the Maccabean time, they had a vine printed on their coins, even. That was how, how ingrained in their society it was. So this was the Israelite coin. There's a vine on it. At Herod's temple at their time, there was a golden vine that was around the entrance to the temple. It was an ornate vine that went around the entrance that when they would come into the temple. They know what the vine is. They know that as Israelites, they are the vine. They are God's vine. But Jesus comes and he says, no, I am the true vine. I'm the one. I am the chosen one to come for you. Not, it's not Israel that saves you. It's only through God. I have to imagine in the chaos of the evening that this is something that the apostles could take comfort in and they could start to understand. On this walk, heading to the garden, they could understand this. They could see what Christ was telling them here. He says his father is the gardener, the farmer, the vine dresser. Okay, now the gardener, we all know if you garden or if you live in the valley here, that the gardener is the one who plans. He's the one who decides what's being planted, where it's being planted. He lays it out in the rows. They got it all set up. He's the one who does this. He knows the plan. Here in the valley, we see that. If you're ever in my car, we're driving around the valley sometimes, and I, my children are going, Dad, what are they doing over here? We have so many different crops. Why are they doing that? What are they doing that? To be honest, I don't know most of the time. I mean, I kind of fool. Oh, yeah, they're doing this, getting ready for that. I have no idea, right? The farmer knows. He knows what he's doing. He's got a plan for that, that land. He's got a plan for those vines. He's got a plan for those trees that he's planting. God has a plan in this. We don't always know. We can't see it, but he's got a plan. Jeremiah 29, 11, for I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a future. Psalm 33, 11, but the plans of the Lord stand firm forever the purposes of his heart through all generations. God has a plan for your life. 
And that plan is to bear fruit for his glory. That's his plan. A lot of times we think that things don't work out. We think, why did this happen? Why did that not go the way I expected to? We're looking at that through our eyes. We're looking through that, through the eyes of a branch connected to a vine that the farmer has the plan on. We don't know what the plan is. God doesn't say he has a plan for you to be healthy. He doesn't say he has a plan for you to be happy. Definitely doesn't say he has a plan for you to be wealthy. Now, is it bad to have those things? Definitely not. Definitely not. But that's God's plan for us to have those things, and we, will, we are in God's plans if we are giving glory to him wherever we are. If we are happy and giving glory to God, if we are wealthy or successful and giving glory to God, giving glory to God for our health. That is God's plan. 1 Peter 4.11, if anyone speaks, they should do as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the praise forever and ever. That is God's plan. He wants us to bear fruit for his glory. Okay, so in this, you have two branches. There's those ones that bear fruit and then those that don't. Verse 2, he cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that dares, does bear fruit, he prunes, so that it will be even more fruitful. Some people take this verse and they view it as Christians who don't bear any fruit. They're thrown away, they're cut off, Christians who aren't, who aren't doing anything. But I see it saying that something a little different in this context. I believe it's referring to those who never truly gave themselves to Christ. I believe that he's explaining we have two kinds of disciples here. And, and I'll explain why I think that. Look, look at chapter 13 of John in the first two verses of chapter 13. Okay, and we're going to start in the second half of verse 1. And it says this, Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Having, already, having loved his own, the 11 true disciples. And then there was the other disciple, Judas Iscariot. Now, this wasn't something that happened spur of the moment. This was not something that Judas had, had given himself to and he was in God and then God all of a sudden decides, no, you, I'm picking you out. You're going to be gone. That's not what happened. Judas's heart had never truly, truly turned to Christ. Look at chapter 12 of John, verses 4 through 6. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. Here's the key part. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put in it. There was no fruit from Judas, and his heart showed it. Those whose heart is truly turned to Jesus will not be thrown into the fire. John 10, 27 through 29. 
My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my father's hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my father's hand. No one can snatch those sheep who come to, to, come to Christ, come to his father out of his hand. John chapter six, verse 37. All those the father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. Those who turn their heart and come to Christ, he will never lose them. If we could lose our salvation, we would, trust me. We would lose it. We have no way to hold on to that ourselves. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But the true branches can never be driven away from Christ. Those who repent of their sins and abide in Christ cannot be snatched away. He's trying in this part to explain to the disciples what happened to Judas. What happened to this man we've lived with for the past three years, we've done ministry with, we've done all these things, and now he's away from us. You've got to remember, they're walking from this upper room. All these things have happened, and they're on their way to the Garden of Gethsemane, and they're wondering what is going on, and Christ is coming to them and say, look, this is what happened. You guys are not going to fall into the fire. Those who turn our hearts to Christ will not be thrown into the fire. Matthew 27, or excuse me, Matthew 7, 21 through 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. That is that other branch. That is that branch that is bearing no fruit. That is the branch that never truly turned their heart to Christ. Brothers and sisters, once we truly turn our heart to Christ, we will not be snatched away by the devil. Your salvation is your salvation. You are with Christ. But there's something that comes with that. There's a part that comes with that. How do you know you are a true branch? How do you know? And not a Judas branch. Look right above in Matthew 7, verse 20. We were just in 21 through 23, but look in verse 20. By their fruit, you will recognize them. You will know them by their fruit. Colossians 1 verse 10, so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God. Matthew 21 verse 43, therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to people who will produce its fruit. It will be evident in our lives. It will be evident in the lives of others. You will see it. You will see the fruit. But now the question is, what is the fruit? What is it? What do I need to do? Now, a lot of people will say it's, it's converting people to Christ. It's a conversion. You know, it's, it's, it's really bringing these people in. And, and there's definitely merit to that. Matthew 28, 19, the great, great commandment. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That is what we are commissioned to do. That's what we are sent out to go and do. But I think there's something that happens in the heart before that. There's something, a transformation that happens in the heart 
before we go out and do that. I think the conversion of people, the bringing people to Christ comes from the fruit. Fruit is what allows you to go and do that. There's a transformation that comes. Look at Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 through 23. I know we're burning those Bible pages up today, right? Verse 16 through verse 23. So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. But the flesh flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They're in conflict with each other, so that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. The acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, and debauchery idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you as I did before that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But here's the key part. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance or patience, kindness, goodness, and faithfulness, gentleness and self-control against such things there is no law these are the fruits that are evident of Christ and of true repentance this coming out in your life these are the fruit that we're talking about these this is the fruit coming off the branch that we can show to the world that we can truly that truly transforms our heart this comes out of that that's what allows us to go and then make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the father son and the holy spirit okay so in john 15 let's look at back at verses 4 through 10 it says remain in me as i also remain in you no branch can bear fruit by itself it must remain in the vine neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me I am the vine and you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and wither. Such branches are picked up, thrown in the fire, and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. This is instruction on how to bear good fruit. If you see, there's a remaining, there's, excuse me, there's a, there's a recurring theme in here. Christ remain in the Father and Father in him. We abide in Christ and Christ abides in us. We take his words in. We obey his words. There's an obedience that goes along with this. There's the following of God's commands that goes along with this. Exist in Christ and let Christ exist in you. John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. We cannot bear fruit on our own. We cannot be morally good enough to make it to heaven. We have all these programs in schools, our community, social programs, things that are taught to do good things. Hey, just be good. Do good things. Hey, be nice. Just just be nice, right? That doesn't lead to Christ. And honestly, in the last 50 years, I bet we can point to a lot of those programs that don't really work. 
seems like the more we tell people to be nice and be good, the more you see that people aren't nice and aren't good. We don't earn our way to salvation. We can't be good enough. Can't be nice enough. It's not going to work. Deeds don't get us there. It's because we are saved that we do good works to honor and glorify Christ. The works comes after the salvation, not before. Ephesians 2, verses 8 through 10. For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. That salvation is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. I can't say, look what I did. I can't get to heaven and say, hey, look, I preached that one Sunday. Right? Good enough? Get me in? Doesn't work. Doesn't do anything. We are saved by grace through faith, and the fruit is what comes from that. So let's look at the true branches, not the Judas branches, not those who never truly repent, not those who don't show the fruit in their lives. Let's look at the true branches. We're speaking of the branches that bear the fruit of the Spirit. Someone who's showing love in their life, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Those are the true branches. But God, <laughs> he makes a hard part here. He doesn't let you just live and bear the fruit like you're going to bear the fruit. Oh, no, no. No, that'd be too easy, right? He prunes us. He cuts us back. He wants us to produce bigger and better fruit. He wants the most he can get off that branch. If you see these farmers out here, you know everything that they're doing. They're, what they're doing is trying to get the most they can out of that crop. Look at this picture. If you've never seen it, if you've never pruned a tree, that's before and after. It looks like it hurts. And those are good producing fruit trees. Matthew chapter 3, verse 8. Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Look down two verses in verse 10. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown in the fire. Matthew 7, 16, just a couple more chapters. By their fruit, you will recognize them. Matthew 7, 19 through 20. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown in the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. Brothers and sisters, the Christian life is about being fruitful. It's about showing that love, joy, peace, patience, all those fruits of the Spirit to others, not for our own moral high ground, not to make us feel good. It is to point to Christ. It's a way to point to salvation. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But the key part of that, it, it is all for the glory of God alone. There's no other glory for showing that fruit of the Spirit. There's no, nothing else that we can do to show out why, besides we are saved by grace through faith in Christ, all for His glory. But He doesn't say it's going to be easy. The pruning hurts. It hurts because it cuts. The blade of a knife cuts. Charles Spurgeon described it this way. He says, God is the vine dresser. He's the farmer. He's coming to you. 
but you're pruned with a knife. So farmers go in and cut the branches. You're pruned with a knife. The blade of the knife, excuse me, the handle of the knife, the handle is how, is how it comes to you. The handle is brought is an example of the tribulations and the trials. The handle is sickness. The handle is abuse. Broken relationships. The death of a loved one. That's the handle. But it's not just the handle. It's the blade. It's the blade that cuts. The blade is the word of God. The blade is what tears at us. The blade is what prunes us back to produce more fruit. Look at Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. This is how we are pruned. This is how we grow in the Lord. This is how we abide in Christ and how Christ abides in us. We cannot produce more fruit without the word of God. He continues to prune us our entire lives. It never stops. He wants us to go from producing little fruit to more fruit to much fruit. This is what God requires of us. This is why that word of God pierces our heart. 1 Thessalonians 2, 13. And we also thank God continually because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as a human word, but as it actually is, the word of God, which is indeed at work in you who believe. It doesn't say the word of God is at work in everyone. It says the word of God is at work in you who believe, the true branches, those who have given their lives to Christ. That's who is getting pruned. That's who are producing more fruit. If you're not producing any fruit, that word of God isn't at work in you. And that branch is cut off and thrown into the fire. 1 John 1, verses 1 through 4. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, and which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared. We have seen it and testified to it. We proclaim to you the eternal life, which was the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you may also have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to you, excuse me, we write this to make our joy complete. The Bible was written for us. The book of, the Bible is a book that was written for our salvation, to point us to Christ, not as a set of do's and don'ts, not as things, oh, I better follow this, but as a guide for the eternal salvation with our Lord and Savior. It was graciously, graciously given to us as a way for the Holy Spirit to work on us, that we may live with God eternally. And there's no other way, because no one comes to the Father except through Christ. Now, the disciples may have been blown away by everything that was going on and that we talked about this evening, but they had faith. 
The disciples held this faith closely. Christ was clear that there was no other way. If you look a little bit further down in John 15, verses 18 through 19, it says, If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it will love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of this world. That is why the world hates you. Jesus was on his way to death. He was on his way to the crucifixion. Remember, we're walking. This is all on a walk. Pretty impressive walk, huh? We're all walking to, he, he's walking with the apostles to the Garden of Gethsemane. He knows where he's going. He also knows that persecution is coming to the church. Persecution is coming to that, those who follow and teach his commandments. The world hates true proclaimers of scripture. Because it shines a light on the darkness. It brings light to sin, is what the word of God does. It, the proclaim of scripture, to speak it and talk, it, talk about it, it brings light to things that people want to hide, things that people want to keep in the darkness, it reveals it. It reveals where the heart's at. The church was persecuted pretty quickly after Jesus' death. In Acts 2, the church begins. We know the Holy Spirit comes down. The church begins. People start, uh, Peter preaches his first sermon. In Acts 4, the apostles are arrested. Okay, didn't take long. In Acts 5, the apostles are arrested again. This time they're flogged and they're beaten for it. In Acts 7, Stephen is stoned to death. We're about four chapters in and Stephen gets stoned. All because speaking the truth. John the Baptist knew this. John the Baptist knew the truth. He was the, he was the great one preaching, clearing the way for God, held to that truth, didn't care if he was, what he was eating and what he was wearing. And what that got John was beheaded and his head served on a platter to Herod. That's what it got him. Ten of the remaining 11 apostles, pushing Judas Iscariot aside, were all killed and martyred for what they were preaching and teaching. The 11th John was exiled to Patmos where he died there. These are the great preachers and teachers proclaimers of the truth, proclaimers of scripture. They did not waver. They held that truth all the way to death. The world hated them. But here's something that sometimes we have to make sure we understand and get correct. The world may hate us, but that doesn't change our view to the world. That doesn't mean we hate the world. Look at chapter 7 of Acts, verses 54 and following. This is talking about Stephen stoning here. It says, When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. He was preaching the word. He was preaching truth. And I think it's interesting that their only response at this point is to be furious and gnash their teeth. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. He said, look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. How do they respond to that? At this, they covered their ears and yelled at the top of their voices. You have somebody in front of you who says, I see God, heaven's open, I see 
Jesus standing at the right hand, and they are so mad at what he's saying, they yell, plug their ears, and they rush him, drag him out of the city, and begin to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out. And listen to what he says here. Lord, do not hold against them this sin. And when he said this, he fell asleep. He's preaching the truth. That's all he's doing. And he had no greater love for those that were hating them than to pray for their sins as they were committing it. Stephen knew the truth. He knew that God had a plan. God has laid out the vineyard and he's planted the true vine Christ. We can only survive if we are attached to him. A vine can't, we can't, a branch can't sustain itself if it's not attached to the base vine. The only way we can do this and truly produce fruit for God is to be in the word of God. And it pierces our heart and guides us to Christ in this world. These are wonderful words that are freely given to us. Doesn't cost anything except maybe our lives. Stephen knew this. The apostles all knew this. Christ told them. And Christ tells us today in the word of God. Let's pray. Lord, we come before you now with this wonderful word that you've given us. Lord, we know that there's no other way to salvation, to God, to see you at the right hand than through your word. Lord, I pray right now that this word that is read, that it works in our hearts, that it convicts us, that it prunes us, Lord. The trials and tribulations are going to come. The hard parts of life are going to come, Lord. They're never going to stop. But our only comfort in life and death is that we are not our own. We belong to you, Lord. Your word gives us that comfort. Your word is what turns us to you instead of hardening our hearts. God, we pray right now that through this week, that the word that you have for each and every person in this room, Lord, will pierce their hearts and draw them closer to you. Be with us this week. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.